It's helped to unmute yourself. If you could turn with me to Mark chapter 10. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 12. And in talking about this, I think I've procrastinated or delayed long enough. Over the past couple of weeks, we've been looking into the verses that Jesus is going to quote from Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24 to the effect that God made humanity male and female and for the purpose of binding them together back as one flesh for a lifelong commitment between one man and one woman as a bond. And I think we oftentimes forget the goodness of God's gifts, the goodness of the institution of marriage itself. And it's really helpful to just read Proverbs and realize that the God who made everything designed it for a reason, that there was intentionality in it, and that when God designed it, marriage, the institution of it, it wasn't arbitrary, but it had purpose and reason and that the way that God set up nature is not contrary to the way God's grace operates in the world. And in fact, where we're picking up in Mark, we're in the midst of a lesson to disciples. Jesus has announced his death, burial, and resurrection that's going to happen in the future. And he started, as he was ministering in Galilee, he started at that point when he revealed who he was, started making his way to Jerusalem. In this journey on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus is using for discipleship, for training his followers. And it's really important that we listen closely to this text, reading about the sanctity of marriage, seeing what Jesus talks about as it relates to the issue, the really complicated issue of divorce, to realize that most people get married. Most people are married. So we need to listen wisely, understanding that that scary part of Proverbs 5, for our, eye, our ways are before the Lord, and he sees what we do. And we want to, as people empowered by the Holy Spirit, live lives pleasing to him. With that in mind, let's start at verse 1 of Mark chapter 10. He left there, that is Jesus, and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made him, made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. 
And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if he divorces her, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is the inerrant word of God. May his blessing be upon the reading of it and also my explanation of it. You know, I really want to make a deal with you guys just at the outset of this. I want to make a deal with you that you would give, lend me some patience. You guys have been a very loving congregation, and you guys are already very patient with me, and I'm very grateful for that. But I want you to be patient with me when we're dealing with this text, especially, especially talking about the issue of divorce. I have two things that I want to accomplish. I want to be honest with you about what God's word says because I love you. Because love for people demands giving them the truth of what God says. It's for your aid and it's for your good. The truth is life. Jesus himself defines himself as the way, the truth, and the life. I have that as a concern, and I don't want to capitulate or compromise in that area of telling you what the Bible teaches here in our text, but I also want to be pastorally sensitive. Sensitive to realize that whatever issue you have going on, if you've experienced a divorce, if you are going through marital strife and difficulty, know that I'm not going to be able to answer and address your particular situation. And please pray for your elders and for me to have wisdom and to help give counsel to people who are in those complicated situations. Situations in which it doesn't seem like always there's a right or wrong answer, even though we know, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, that no temptation that we receive is not one that's not common to humanity. That sin, when it comes to sin and the temptation to sin, there's nothing new under the sun. And that should give us comfort, especially when we look at texts like this, realizing that while your particular situation, I can't help you from the pulpit navigate your issue, and I'm probably going to leave a lot of questions you have that if you want me to address your particular situation, you're probably not going to hear it right now. But what you are going to hear, and what I hope you hear, is what God's word teaches about the sanctity of marriage and why God hates divorce. And that it's not for some arbitrary reason, but it's for a good reason. We have to be careful here, especially in how I've mapped out the outline, which is found in the back of your bulletin. And you don't have too much space for it. But what I would like you to do is what we're going to set up is look at how a legalist views the law in general. How does a legalist relate to and think about God's ways and God's commandments? And what we'll see here is that the surface level issue, not the unimportant one, but the surface level issue is the issue of divorce and how it works out. But what it's stemming from and the roots of it 
is a misunderstanding, a fundament, fundamental misunderstanding of who God is, his goodness, his character, and the nature of the rules that he writes. What we'll see is as we look at this issue of marriage, and that's what I really want you to write out to the side, and if you write down scripture citations, make application yourself to the institution of marriage and divorce, while the outline should prevent provide you with the general rules. As you can probably guess, the Pharisees think about marriage and divorce differently than Jesus. And actually, we can go ahead and say that the Pharisees, you can probably assume, are going to be wrong about how they view marriage and divorce. But we don't need to assume that. We can just go to the text. Starting at verse 2, the Pharisees came up to Jesus not in order to ask him a legitimate question. They were asking him a question to test him. And I've already said this twice before, and you'll hear it one more time in a couple weeks when we get there. But this word that John, that Mark rather uses to say to test Jesus only occurs four times in the Gospel of Mark. And the first time it occurs is Mark chapter 1, verse 15, where Satan tests or tempts Jesus in the wilderness. In the next three times that it's applied, it's applied to the Pharisees, who are also seeking to test or to tempt Jesus. If you want those references, Mark chapter 8, verse 13, here in 10, chapter, verse 10, chapter 10, verse 2, there we go. And then last of all, it'll occur in chapter 12, verse 15. But that doesn't really fully describe even the scope of the type of interaction Jesus has with the Pharisees in general. But what Mark is doing here is he's showing a direct clue here that they're not here with good intentions. And if we realize that Jesus just entered into Judea beyond the Jordan in verse 1, what we see is really why, how the Pharisees are exactly tempting and testing Jesus. They're trying to get him killed. Why do I say that? Well, we already saw someone get killed in Mark's gospel. It was John the Baptist. John the Baptist came up to Herod and told him that his marriage was illegitimate, that he had stolen his brother's wife. You know, the wife, Herodias, didn't take too fondly to that, started scheming on how she could get John the Baptist killed, and Herod did execute John the Baptist. He's the governor of Judea. And it makes sense that when Jesus enters into Judea, the Pharisees aimed their attack at the very topic that they think that Jesus is what's going to get Jesus killed. And their question is <coughs> a simple one, but it's pretty difficult for us. And it's a question that we often ask ourselves. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? You know, 
It doesn't matter your motivations. That question could be asked with good motivations or bad motivations. There are people who ask this question trying to wonder, is it ever permissible to get divorced? Or maybe... <clears throat> Or maybe just looking at the nuances of it and seeing different abusive relationships or it's just being in an unhappy marriage for years and years and years and saying to yourself and wondering, does God really want me to put up with this marriage? You know, we said that marriage is a gift, that it's God's creation for our benefit then why is it so hard in so many cases? Why is it so much that there's struggle and strife? The quick answer is sin. From the very first moment humanity fell, God pronounced a curse on Adam and Eve. In Genesis 3, verse 16 says that he would put enmity between man and woman that there would be this conflict that's seen in the very good institution God has provided us. You see, the nature of divorce and the problem that arises is not a problem that arises out of some good thing. Divorce is a necessary evil, if you will, is a consequence of living in a fallen world where sin is involved. So there is a certain sense in which there's a legitimate question of when is, if ever, divorce permissible? And the Pharisees, once again, they approach the question wrongly, and they approach the question wrongly for the same reason we probably do. The goal in looking at this topic is where we cannot start is where we want to start. We want to start with, how does God address, address this specific problem? Dealing with the exceptions rather than the rule. Trying to figure out exactly how to navigate this issue by dealing with the overly complicated topics. But that's not what Jesus does here. And it's not how we should address the, our issues either. We should not tend to focus on the exceptions, especially because when we realize looking specifically at the institution of marriage itself, what our own sinful proclivity is. In our sin, the reason why we're often asked ourselves this question, if we're really honest with ourselves, is because we're looking for a loophole. We've made a permanent bond with another person, and we regret the decision. And we ask ourselves, is there any way out from under this? Is there any way that I can get out from under this obligation? And that's why I would remind you that the Westminster Confession, uh, chapter 24, paragraph 6, helpfully points out that when we're looking at this specific issue, that it's the corruption of men, human beings, that were apt to study arguments, justifications unduly to put asunder those whom God has joined together in marriage. 
we are as human beings and the point that we need, the reason why we should not focus on the exception and focus first and foremost on the rule is because we know our sinful nature. We know that we're tending to justify ourselves, to excuse our sins and get out from the duties that God puts on us. And when we do this, what we are looking at, when we look at God's law, you know what a legalist does not understand when it comes to God's ways? And even asking this question and looking for loopholes, we see that the legalist does not even understand why the law exists. That's that first fill in the blank. And it's a phrase. The legalist does not understand why the law exists. The law does not exist because creation is in a perfect state. Rather, the reason why the law exists, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 10 says, is we know that the law is good, but only if the law, only if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient. You see, the reason why God's law is so necessary, the reason why it's so helpful that we've been given things like Jesus's clear articulation here in Mark chapter 10, is because we often think that God's law is this arbitrary list of things, rules to follow that make him happy. And we don't really understand why, but we're really trying to figure out exactly how we can Follow it without, you know, maybe while looking for loopholes to not break it necessarily. But what we're losing sight of is that God's law is actually good. And it's good not because we live in a perfect world, because in a perfect world, we wouldn't need God's law and God's instructions. We live in a sinful world where people do terrible things. And God's law is good in showing us how we should live, showing us what God's way is, condemning sin in our life, pointing it out, making it obvious to us so that we can know how far short that we have gotten. We see the Pharisees' view. When the Pharisees asked him in order to test him, try to get Jesus to make himself culpable to hopefully come under Herod's thumb to get him to kill him. Verse 3 Jesus turns the question on them and says, what did Moses command you? And did you catch that? That the Pharisees did not answer with what Moses commanded them. They answered with what Moses allowed for or what God Moses gave permission. That Moses gave permission to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. This is quoting, and they are quoting Deuteronomy chapter four, or Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses one through four. And there is given, and I think I could be incorrect on this, I think it's the only permission that's given by Moses to divorce. But it's not a command. You know, interestingly, if you look at Deuteronomy 24, the only command in that section was that a man who divorces his wife. If she remarries, he cannot take her back. 
You see, the permission that Moses laid out was not to give people a loophole out of the institution of marriage. He was giving specifically women the protection that a man could not just suddenly decide to demiss his his wife without consequences attached to it. This is a permission that they're looking for. Isn't that so like us? That we, what we focus on is the exception, focusing on where the permission is to try to get ourselves out from under the law. When the law itself is, a, this is a permission, this is not something that's an obligation, but is a protection for good in the midst of a sinful world where husbands do abandon their spouses. You know, there's a helpful illustration, or at least an illustration that helped me a lot. You know, I'm looking for a house right now. And let's say I found a house and it was a perfect house, had a big backyard, but there was only one problem with the backyard. It had a major cliff on the back side of it. And But I love the house. I don't want to not get that house. So what I do is I buy the house and I put in a fence around the borders of that yard so that that cliff is not a problem. There's three kinds of kids. There's one kind of kid that when he's put in the backyard, looks at the fence and says, you know, my parents just don't want me to have fun. My parents do not... Their rules, their established little boundaries aren't going to stop me. I'm going to engineer a way to climb over that fence. Because you know what? They don't know what they're talking about. And I don't, it doesn't seem to me that there's a legitimate reason for keeping me in this cage. That little kid runs over to the fence, jumps over it, and discovers quickly that the parents had a reason. And sometimes, depending on the size of that cliff, the consequences that catch up with us are either really quick or they're slow and take a longer time. But the consequences of violating God's law will catch up with us. And the consequences are real in this life. Divorce has real consequences that hurt people. And the situations that cause people even to contemplate divorce are real painful situations. I'm not trying to minimize that at all. And don't mistake me at any point in trying to minimize those things. There's another kind of kid, though. The rule follower. And you can see them if you put, you know, all three kids out. One goes and leaps over the fence. Lost one kid, but you have two at least. And one of those kids you see is playing in the yard, but the other one's patrolling the fence. Walking alongside it, looking to see, well, I wonder where the boundaries exactly are. And when he's focusing on the fence and he's looking at the boundaries and looking at him being hemmed in, He feels just like the kid who didn't like the rules. He doesn't like the rules either. 
he stares at the fence and he gets bitter and more bitter and more bitter about it. And he starts to hate his parents and realizes, you know what? They don't love me. They're creating all these rules, all these obligations for me. For what reason? It's no purpose. There's no reason for this fence. But you know what? I don't want to suffer their wrath. So I'm going to obey. And as soon as I get out of the house, I'm not going to listen anymore. But you know what? Both the rule follower, the Pharisee, who patrols the border and starts feeling the burden of the fence, feels the same way about their parents as the one that jumps over it. Both have a fundamental misunderstanding about why the law exists, why the fence exists. It exists for our good, for our benefit. And actually the fence in creating it and the whole reason behind it was out of the parents' love for their children, knowing that they have a dangerous backyard. Jesus wants to move us into, his disciples in particular, into seeing his law as good. And how does he do that? Well, he says what Moses commands was due to their hardness of heart. Yes, due to sin and the consequences thereof. But from the beginning, God made them male and female, verse 6. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one. So they are no longer two flesh, but one flesh. I'll let you listen to the past two weeks if you want to understand why exactly and how we come to this definition. But the definition that Jesus comes to by quoting Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 and verse 6, and then Genesis 2, 24 and verse 7, is he's defining marriage as not a mere social construct, but that this social contract that two men, one man and one woman enter into is an establishment that God recognizes himself. God made humanity male and female for this reason, to pair together. And this union that happens in marriage is one that God sees and God considers that two people, two individuals have become one. And the principle that Jesus lays out is one of permanence, that what God has put together, let no man separate. And if you think I didn't get into this, I did not, you know, I did not set myself up for this. Well, the reality is, is you probably said some vows, made some promises to God. And part of those promises is through, through uh, pain, through trials, sickness, health, till death. Do us part. Jesus wants us to see the goodness of it because of all the different reasons God gave marriage. And that's the reason why I had Steve read Proverbs chapter 2 and Proverbs chapter 5. is to see that, you know, as Christians, we often come under the same sense that the legalist has. 
seeing marriage as not this blessing in our lives, but seeing it as a burden, seeing the pain, seeing the hardship. And you know what would be wise? Wisdom, if you are married, looks like not leading your spouse to consider divorce. It looks like, if you're wise, to enjoy your spouse, to love them, to cherish them as a gift that they are from God, warts and all, realizing that you are one. And God considers you one. This is the goodness of God's commands. And we see this goodness in so many different ways. Even if we don't necessarily enjoy due to sin, the marriage that we might find ourselves in, we can at least see and confess that marriage was ordained as chapter 24, section 2 of the Westminster Confession says, that marriage was set up, ordained by God for the mutual help of husband and wife. That's for companionship. That it's a benefit for procreation, hence male and female. That it's of benefit to supply the church with a holy seed. That parents are under the obligation from God to not just have children, but to raise those children and point them to know who God is. To raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. <clears throat> and also, in a sinful world, marriage has the functions, 1 Corinthians 7 tells us, of being a protection, a legitimate protection against succumbing to our sinful lusts and temptations. These are all good reasons why marriage exists. The institution of marriage and what the legalist does not understand is it doesn't, they don't understand why the law exists. They don't understand that the law and what God commands is good. That's that second blank in case I didn't say it. They didn't understand the goodness of God's commands. And I would just like to add to that, the goodness of the God who wrote that law. And Jesus, in order to get us to see, to get us to enjoy the backyard, to understand and trust our parents and the rules that they've made, especially God himself, he blesses the sanctity of marriage. And then what we see lastly is that since the legalist does not understand why the law exists or the goodness of God's commands, it should be no surprise to us that the legalist or the Pharisee <coughs> does not understand how to apply the law legitimately. That the legalist does not understand how to apply the law legitimately. You see, when the Pharisees brought this up, it wasn't just a, attack, a chance to get Jesus to maybe be condemned by Herod and put to death. It's also an issue that they struggled with. They did not know how to answer this question exactly. Everyone kind of agreed with the idea that adultery was a grounds for divorce and a grounds for separation. But there was a strict party that said that basically that was the only escape from out of the obligations of marriage. But then there was a religious party, a sect of the Pharisees, who said that really you could divorce your wife for any indecency that you found in her. You see, the reason why Deuteronomy 24 exists is for people like that. 
people who at that time, the Hillel, I believe the Hillel group of the group side of the Pharisees on this argument and follow this rabbi's teaching said you could divorce your wife if she burnt your cooking. You could divorce your wife if she did not please you. You could divorce your wife if you found a woman who's more pleasing to you. Really, they stretched out that word indecency to apply to any preference that you could have to get rid of her. The same social obligation was not really, or the same social pressure did not work in the reverse. Moses had set up a, a protection because of the hardness of their heart. But that doesn't mean that there's no case in which divorce is not legitimate. And I'm not going to be able to go into all the depths of this topic. I'm going to restrain myself to what Mark says. Mark, and actually Matthew, import, includes a very helpful caveat to this. Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, verse 19, or verse 9, has the same statement and says, I tell you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Why does Mark not include that phrase there, except for adultery? It's because if you read your Old Testament, that was an unspoken thing. You didn't have to outline that. Just for proof of that, and I think an important thing, if that's, that's a pretty bold statement. Well, I would like you to think about, we just came out of Christmas a few months ago. Remember Joseph. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 says, Now the birth of, her, of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed or engaged to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So her husband, Joseph, listen to this, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. Again, Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8. God talking to Israel and the covenant he had them and the binds that he had, the binds, the bind of covenant that he had with Israel said, I observed that it was because of unfaithful Israel and committed adultery that I, that's God, sent her away and had given her a certificate of divorce. Why is this? Why are we said that God bound together one man and one woman in the institution of marriage, why is adultery something that would break it? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13 starts to explain this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says that the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Verse 16, don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For scripture says, the two will become one flesh. Paul is quoting Genesis 2.24 again there. And what he's saying there is that the reason why you should not commit adultery as a Christian is because you are making her one with her. And yes, 
It's disrupting this unity between a man and a woman, breaking apart the one flesh union that is marriage. And not only that, but more importantly, from the, for the Christian, verse 17, the very next line says, but anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Adultery is this special case that subverts the very oneness of marriage. Now, this is not an obligation. The only thing that we're given when it comes to divorce in Deuteronomy chapter 24 is not an obligation, but one of permission. We have this beautiful book of Hosea where God tells a man to marry a prostitute. Someone he would know would cheat on him time and time again. And God told him to do that, to marry this specific woman, Gomer, for the very reason to be a picture of God's love for his people. That God, although he had every right to leave his people because the sins of adultery committed against him time and time again, that God in his faithful pursuit of his people did not leave them. But he remained faithful to them while they were faithless towards himself. There's a sinful world that we live in, in which adultery can and does break apart marriage. And it's legitimate because it actually does break into that one flesh union. But God himself is one who is patient with us, kind towards us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So it's a permission. And the reality of a sinful world and this exception that God gives us, there are some situations where our spouse does leave, does not want to be engaged, And we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the other uh, element of this, that divorce is permissible, that if a believer has their unbelieving spouse leave them and abandon them, verse 15, if a brother leaves, if an unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. For wife, Do you know whether you will save your husband or husband? How do you know whether you will save your wife? You know, this is an issue of wisdom. Pray for your elders to know how to navigate these issues. You see, God in his pursuit is able to save the one he pursues. With us, if someone, if your spouse abandons you, and has no intention of coming back and returning to the marriage, you don't have that same power. But it doesn't mean that if you choose forgiveness and God's grace, that you're not doing something that's a picture of God himself and his love for his people. You know, I, for your sake, I can't go into all the depths of this. I can't navigate every single issue. But I think for the person who's 
really wondering. Looking, there's so many different types of people just and thinking, the married, be committed to your spouse. Love them. Realize that God has given you and put you in a good gift of marriage and that you have no right to break apart what God has put together. You think you made the choice to marry your spouse and you did. But your choice had consequences, obligations, uniting, and you're called to faithful love to your spouse. And if you need help, which I would not be, I'm not so naive, I might be young, but I'm hopefully not that naive as to think that no one in this room, no marriage in this room is not struggling. Please don't wait until you are pushed to the, your breaking point. Get help when you first have the inklings that there's a problem. Second, to those who are single, I can't promise you, and it's not part of God's plan, that there's this plan that we know for sure that God is going to send someone into your life. And I pray for you that God would give you strength. But when it comes to marriage, realize that God uniting someone together is not something you can really plan. And go ahead, since you know it's the normal course of life, and prepare for it. Prepare for it to be highly selective if you're going to be uniting yourself as one flesh to a specific person. To those who have divorced on legitimate grounds, know that it's not your fault. Know that your divorce, if it was legitimate, that you didn't cause it. You might have made each other angry. You might have been an opportunity for temptation. Sure, we all are as sinners. But ultimately, the responsibility is on that person. We are Christian, as Christians, cold to stay, but we cannot keep people if they choose to flee and run away. And last of all, maybe most importantly, is probably what you're hearing if you have been divorced. If you're remarried and you're thinking, I've sinned, does God forgive me? Jesus affirms his words here and refer, affirms the sanctity of marriage by saying, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever divorces her husband and marries another commits adultery. Let me tell you, Let's pretend that it was illegitimate. That you separated from your spouse, you abandoned her, and that your spouse has since remarried. That does not mean that if you have remarried and you're married to your second spouse, that you're living in this perpetual, adulterous relationship. That's not the case. Uh, at least, I don't think so. Because Deuteronomy 24 said that you could not take back that spouse who remarried. It seems to me what Jesus is getting at is that initial act of remarriage in an illegitimate case is an act of adultery. And what you're called to now as a Christian learning this information 
is to be faithful to the relationship you're in. Faithful to the spouse who God has put together. You know, we all struggle with this as Christians. We read through our Bibles. We discover that certain things are sins. And when we reflect on our life and how we've lived and the choices that we've made, we realize we've made sinful choices. We regret them. And if we could live it all over again, we wouldn't do the same mistakes twice. We all face when we're reading, if we're Christians and reading our Bible carefully, that sometimes whole areas of our life we discover we've thought sinfully and acted sinfully from that point in our early youth and the way our parents raised us till this very day. You know what we're supposed to do when we're confronted with our sin, past, present, and really even into the future? We're to confess our sins. Yes, that means turn from them. But in the case of remarriage, repenting does not look the same in every single situation. Repentance, part of repentance is agreeing with God. Confession means agreement with what God's law says. Agreeing that I am a sinner. And in and of myself, I am unworthy of God's grace. But thanks be to God that while I was a sinner, Christ died for me. He paid for all my sins. And our out here is not to find a loophole to excuse any of our sin but to go to Christ and look to his grace and his forgiveness. And I realize that I've probably left more questions than answers. So please, come up to me, come up to one of the elders. Don't be laden down with guilt no matter what your situation is. No matter what sin that you struggle with, instead, let God's grace wash over you. In the blood of Christ, wash you clean, white as snow, and believe that good news that for all those who believe in Christ, all their sins in the past have been done away with. And turn and live unto God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that people would be patient with me, that they would be patient with your word, that they would not, that we, none of us would be offended and let that be their driving response when we see the implications of what it has to say about our way of life, our parents' way of life, or our neighbors' way of life. That, but upon discovering what God's law says, that we would agree with you, that you are good, that your rules are good. And your reasons for having those rules are good. And that we should not be surprised that when we read your word, we find that we are sinners. But may we not, in discovering that we're sinners, think that we're beyond God's saving grace. May we not, Lord, be ostracized from church, the church community when we confess our sin when we tell our sinful past, but may we be accepted by the church of Jesus Christ the same way we're accepted by our heavenly Father as children of God. May you free us 
to readily confess our sins, not just to you, but also to our neighbor and do it unashamedly because we have been forgiven. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen. If you'll stand with me, let's sing God's praises in response to his word.